In our Sunday school class, we are going through the various things that our church believes that the Bible teaches. And one of the things that we are talking about is the subject of the Lord's Supper. And um, in our Confession of Faith, which is our church's doctrinal statement, we're looking together at chapter 30. And chapter 30 talks about the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper is just our communion service that we have once a month. And it's important for us to understand why we have that, what it means, what it doesn't mean, and to be able to grasp the significance of it. So if you notice chapter 30 and paragraph 5, it says the outward elements in this ordinance, namely the bread and wine, Okay, the outward elements in this ordinance duly set apart to the use ordained by Christ have such relation to him crucified as that truly, although in terms used figuratively, they are sometimes called by the names of the things they represent to wit, the body and blood of Christ, albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. And then paragraph six says the doctrine or the teaching which maintains a change of the substance in bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation by consecration of a priest or by any other way, is repugnant not to scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason, overthrows the nature of the ordinance and has been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. Now, if the language sounds a little strange, it's because the, the confession was written in 1689. And so there's a little Elizabethan English there, but nevertheless, it, it conveys the, um, the meaning and the teaching of the scriptures very well in relationship to this subject of the Lord's Supper. Now, anytime we deal with the teaching of the Bible, We've got to do two things. We have got to teach what the Bible says. And secondly, we have to rebut all the errors that are floating around, which distort what the Bible says. So paragraph five that I just read to you sets forth the true nature of what the Bible teaches about the bread and the wine that exist in the Lord's Supper. What are they? And then paragraph six talks about the error that is taught by the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church about what the body, about what the bread and the wine actually are. Now, Protestants teach in accord with the Bible that the bread and the wine remain bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. And when you eat it, you're eating bread and wine. The Catholics, on the other hand, teach that by the actions of the priest, the bread and the wine are actually changed into the literal, physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. So by this act of transubstantiation that the priest does, they say, that a miracle occurs and the wine becomes the blood of Christ and the bread becomes the flesh of Christ and you are literally eating Christ when you eat 
the bread, and the wine. And this is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And because it's such an egregious error, it was necessary to take note of it and to rebut it. And that's why we have paragraph six in our Confession of Faith. So what we want to do is talk about these two paragraphs then and talk about what the Bible actually teaches and what it does not teach about the nature of the elements, namely the bread and the wine. Okay, so what we want to do then is we want to um, uh, look in the scriptures and we want to see what those scriptures teach about the nature of the bread and the wine that Jesus um, has, uh, has set before us as, as metaphors or symbols of his shed body and of his uh, shed blood. So let's turn our Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to look at verses 26 through verses um, 28. In Matthew chapter um, 26, Jesus is celebrating the Lord's Supper. And um, it says in verse 26, Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, or the New Covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, if you stopped right there, you might think, Wow, Jesus is saying that this bread is his body. And this wine is his blood. And therefore, they've been changed into that. And of course, that's exactly what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. But what's interesting is the very next verse. Notice he says, verse 29, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of what? this fruit of the vine. After he says this wine, okay, this, this cup is the blood of the New Testament in verse 28. In verse 29, he refers to it as the fruit of the vine. He doesn't refer to it as blood, okay? And what he's saying is clearly it's still the fruit of the vine. It hasn't been changed into anything else. So when he says, this is my blood, he's obviously speaking metaphorically and not literally because in the very next verse, he says it's still literally the fruit of the vine, not plasma, white blood cells, red blood cells, and all those other things that, that, that uh, exist in blood. So what we want to do then is we want to look at a number of reasons why this cannot 
be referring to the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ and that Jesus here was speaking metaphorically. So when Jesus said regarding the bread, this is my body, what he meant is that this represents my body. Okay, and he's using a figure of speech here, which is used very frequently um, in the scriptures and even in our everyday uh, communication. Now, let's look at some examples of where somebody says this is that. When it's not literally that. But what he's doing is he's using a metaphor when he says this is that he's saying this is like that or this represents that. Turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 41 verses 26 and 27. Genesis chapter 41 verses 26 to 27. Now, Joseph here is interpreting Pharaoh's dream. And uh, you remember Pharaoh had the dream about these uh, uh, fat cattle and skinny cattle and blasted ears and fat ears of corn and and those kinds of things. And um, notice verse 25. It says, And Joseph said unto Pharaoh, The dream of Pharaoh is one. God has showed Pharaoh what he is about to do. Now notice it says, the seven kind are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years, the dream is one. And the seven thin and ill-favored kind that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blasted with east wind shall be seven years of famine. So he says time and again, this is that, and this is that. But clearly we understand what he's saying is that the seven kind represent seven years. And the seven blasted ears represent seven years. And so this kind of language, this metaphorical language of saying this is that, really means this represents that. The seven kind weren't literally seven years. How could seven cows literally be seven years? No, the seven cows represented seven years. Okay, and how could seven ears of corn be seven years? They can't be. Seven ears of corn represent seven years. So when it says this is that, it just simply means this represents that. Okay. Now let's look at an example in the New Testament, Matthew 13. This is um, where Jesus is using parables and interpreting parables. Matthew chapter 13, and we'll look at verse 38. He's interpreting here the parable of the sower. And... um, Then he says um, in verse uh, 38, he says, the field is the world. Now, 
Is the field literally the world? No, the field represents the world. Okay? It's, it's very clear. We would never say the field literally is the world. We'd say the field represents the world. Okay? Let's look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20. And these are just a few examples. Numerous examples could be adduced. Um, but in Revelation 1 and verse 20, uh, he's talking about here um, the, the imagery that John saw in his vision. It says in Revelation 1.20, And the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now is a candlestick a church? It is not. A candlestick represents a church and a star represents a messenger. So my point is, is that when Jesus said, this is my body, what he meant is clearly this represents my body. Just like all these other passages, we read them and instantly we go, okay, the seven kind are seven years with the seven kind represents seven years. Okay. When we read the field is the world, we instantly know the field represents the world. When um, Jesus says the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. We understand that to mean the seven candlesticks represent the seven churches. And so when Jesus says, this bread is my body, we understand that to mean this bread represents my body. It's not rocket science. It's simple grammar that we use all the time in our communication. And furthermore, Jesus used many metaphors to describe himself, this wasn't the only one. For example, in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. Now, the word there for way is the word for road. In the Greek, it's hados, okay? And so Jesus says, I am the road. Was he literally a road? No, he wasn't literally a road. He said in John 15, 1, I am the vine. Was he literally a vine? No, the vine represented something about Christ, okay? John 10, 9, he says, I am the door. Was Jesus literally a door? He wasn't, okay? And so the vine and the door and the road all represented something, some characteristic or attribute of Jesus Christ. And so we don't take these kind of metaphorical statements with a rigid literalness. If we did, we would wind up with nonsense, and so we shouldn't take his words at the Last Supper when he says, you know, this bread is my body, this wine is my blood. We shouldn't take those things with a wooden literalness either. Clearly, he's using metaphorical language. The, one of the rules of the interpretation of the scripture is when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. It means what it says. But when the plain sense re results in nonsense, like I am the door, okay, he's a piece of wood that's this thick, 
and 32 inches wide and 72 inches. No, that's nonsense. That doesn't make sense. So then we seek another sense. We say, okay, you know, if the plain sense makes good sense, we seek no other sense. We just take it literally. Okay. But when the, the plain sense makes nonsense, then we do seek another sense. And that other sense is metaphorical. Okay. And that's when we switch from literal to metaphorical, when we recognize this does not compute. There must be something else being meant here. And so if Jesus were speaking literally, and if we took him literally, then what Jesus would be saying is this bread is my dead body, which is currently broken for you because when Christ died on the cross, his body was broken. Okay. And what that means is that his soul was separated from his body. So his body ceased to function. When you say my car is broken, what do you mean? My car isn't functioning. Okay. And when someone's body is broken, it means it's not working anymore. And so when Jesus died on the cross, his body was broken in that it ceased to function. He died. That's what it means so that his body was broken. So if, if what he's doing is speaking literally here and he's saying, this bread is my dead body, which is broken for you, it is impossible because when he said that, his body was yet very much alive sitting in front of them unbroken. And so his body could not be dead and alive at the same time. Furthermore, the disciples would have had to have understood that Christ was handling his own body with his own hands. When he held it in his hands and he says, this is my body. No, Jesus, your body is holding what's in your hands. What's in your hands isn't your body. No rational man who was sitting at the Last Supper, observing Christ and listening to his words, would have ever thought that what he was holding in his hands was his hands and his feet and his head and everything else. It would have never occurred to any of the 11 disciples that were there to think that. Furthermore, as we have observed already, after the elements were blessed and consecrated, the elements were still called bread and wine. You remember in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 and 27, he says, this, is, this bread is my body, this wine is my blood. In the very next verse, he says, I will not eat any more of what? The fruit of the vine. Okay, so it was still the fruit of the vine. It was unchanged. And um, turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 10. And uh, interesting passage here that brings out the same point. Talking about the celebration of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. It says, The cup of blessing which we bless... Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? 
And the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now, if you stopped right there, once again, you might say, well, look there. Paul is saying that it is the blood and the body of Christ. But we don't stop there. Notice verse 17. For we being many are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of what? That one bread. In other words, when we partake, what is it? It's still bread. And notice he's clearly speaking um, metaphorically when in the first part of verse 7 he says, for we being many are one bread. Are, are you guys one bread? Are you like one loaf of bread sitting out there? Can I like slice you and butter you? Obviously not. What he's saying is that Though we're individual peoples, we're all part of a single unit. Just like a loaf of bread is a single thing, but then it has many parts when it's sliced, okay? And it's like we're all individual slices of a single loaf, so we have diversity, and we also have unity as a church. We don't have 15 churches here. We've got one church with 15 people making up that church, okay? So... Anyway, what he's saying is when we partake, verse 17, he says, For we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What then? That the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. I would not that she should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord... In the cup of devils, you cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. So the point that he's making here is that after we eat it, it is still called bread. Turn to chapter 11, next page over, same book. And notice Paul's explanation of the Lord's Supper, verse 23, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Now notice the next phrase, for as often as you eat this bread, eat this what? It's still bread. Even after the consecration, even after the words are said, it's still bread. As often as you eat this bread, not as often as you eat the body of Christ. And drink the cup, what is it? It's still the cup, it's not the blood of Christ. You do show the Lord's death till he comes. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread, again he calls it bread, and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, that phrase, be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, means that in the context that he would be guilty of disrespecting the body and blood of the Lord, which are represented in the bread and the wine, which are still bread and wine, when they are consumed. You know, it's like if you take the American flag and you stomp all over it, 
What are you doing? You're stomping not on just a piece of cloth made of threads. You're stomping on a symbol. The American flag is the symbol of the United States. Now, would we ever say that the flag is the United States? The flag is not the United States. The flag represents the United States. But when you stomp on that flag, you are stomping on the United States, aren't you? To defile the symbol and to desecrate the symbol is to desecrate the thing it represents. And so when you desecrate the symbols of the body and blood of Christ, namely the bread and the wine, you're guilty of desecrating the thing they represent, namely the body and blood of Christ. But you're not literally stomping on Christ any more than you're literally stomping on America when you stomp on a flag. But symbolically, that's what you're doing. And so that's what he means when he says you'll be guilty of the body and blood, not because it is the body and blood, but because it represents the body and blood. And when you defile the symbol, you defile the thing that it represents, not because the thing, symbol is the thing, but because the symbol represents the thing. It's interesting to note <clears throat> that these variations in language that are used in describing the Lord's Supper are utterly inconsistent with a literal use. In every record of the event of the Lord's Supper, Matthew 26, 27, Mark 14, 23, Luke 22, 20, and 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. Those are the four places where the Lord's Supper is described. In every case, it says Jesus took the cup. It doesn't say he took the wine. It says he took the cup and blessed it and said this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Now, if we applied the same rigid literalism to that phrase as we do to the phrase, this is my body, or this is my blood, then we would have to say that the metal vessel that Jesus was holding in his hand was the covenant. The cup is the covenant. That's what Jesus says. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so if we're going to use the same literal language, we would have to say the metal vessel was the covenant, the new covenant between man and God. And clearly this is ludicrous. The new covenant is stated in Jeremiah 33, 31 and following, and in Hebrews chapter 8 and in Hebrews chapter 10. And we know the new covenant isn't a metal vessel. It's a set of terms that define the relationship between God and man based on the sacrifice of Christ and the benefits that flow out of it. That's what the new covenant is. It isn't a metal vessel. And so a figure of speech called a metonymy is what's clearly used here. And a metonymy is when you substitute one thing for another by direct statement. 
For example, in Psalm 23 and verse 5, it says regarding God, the psalmist says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, pray tell what good would a table do you in the presence of your enemies? Maybe you could put stuff on it. What he's really saying is you prepare food before me in the presence of my enemies. Okay, and the table is used by way of metonymy for that which sits on the table. Namely, the psalmist is saying, even though my enemies are swarming me and trying to destroy me, you continue to feed me. And so the idea is that the table is used for the things placed upon it, namely the food, and the cup is used as a metonymy for that which it contains, namely the wine which is in it. And if a figure of speech is allowed with reference to the metal vessel, and everyone, including the Catholics, admit that it is, then why can't such a statement as this is my body also be seen as a figure of speech? Plainly, it must. Now, what's fascinating is that as Jesus celebrates the Lord's Supper, he says in Luke twenty-two nineteen as well as 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four and 25, which we just read, that the Lord's Supper is to be celebrated in remembrance of Christ. Remember Jesus said time and again, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me, right? I mean, you're looking right here at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, okay, verse 25, verse 24. He says, and when he had given thanks, he break it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. At the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Twice he said, Do this in remembrance of me. Now, folks, you don't remember something that is present. You remember something that is absent. If the wafer and the wine actually become Christ, which is what the Catholics say it does, then we would be observing Christ, not remembering him. And in fact, that's precisely what they do when they lift up the host and they lift up the chalice. Is they want you to look on that and worship that because that is Christ. There's no need to remember someone who's present. You just observe someone who's present. So his command would be not, remember me, do this in remembrance of me. He would say, do this in observation of me, because I'm there. If what the Catholics teach was the truth. Furthermore, if the wafer and the wine become the literal body and blood of Christ, as they say it is, then to consume them would be to engage in an act of cannibalism and consumption of blood. And while the eating of human flesh is nowhere expressly condemned as sin in the scripture, all civilized people find the consumption of human flesh utterly abhorrent. And in the cases in which cannibalism is recorded in the Bible, it always occurs when the people of God are under severe judgments from God and they are starved as a result of those judgments to the point that they start consuming each other just to survive. 
It occurs when they are under God's wrath and under God's curse as an act of desperation. And you can look at every case where cannibalism occurs in the scripture, and I have the list of verses here. And in every case, the act of cannibalism was a result of a desperate attempt to survive a severe judgment of God. It was the very lowest thing that people could sink to. And it is incomprehensible that such an act could ever be construed as an act of worship. Furthermore, consumption of blood of any type is condemned both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, in Genesis 9 and verse 4, Noah was told not to eat blood. In Leviticus 7, verses 26 and 27, it says, Moreover, ye shall eat no manner of blood. Whatsoever soul it be that eateth any manner of blood, even that soul shall be cut off from his people. And so in Leviticus 17 and elsewhere where they're told, when you slaughter an animal, pour it out on the ground. Do not consume it. And then, of course, in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 15 and verse 20, the apostles wrote a letter to all the churches that they abstain from idols, from fornication, from things strangled, and from blood. And the reason why blood is forbidden to us to consume is because it's part of the Noahic covenant, which is still in force to this very day. The same covenant that authorized our eating of meat and our carrying out of capital punishment is the same covenant that forbade us the consumption of blood. And so when the Noahic covenant, which is still in force, forbids the consumption of blood. And when the apostles in the New Testament in Acts 15 and verse 20 listed the eating of blood along with fornication as something we shouldn't do, why would as the central act of our worship we be consuming literal blood? It's nuts. Well, we have more points to make, but we're out of time. I think by now you can see the case is overwhelming. It's staggeringly overwhelming. Uh, but uh, next week we'll finish up and move on to happier subjects. Um, but uh, the reason why uh, it, this is worthy of, of attention is because 450 million people practice this. That's how many people there are in the Catholic Church. I was a Catholic. I was born a Catholic, raised a Catholic. I did this. I believed this until God saved me. My brother's a Roman Catholic priest. He does this every Sunday and claims to be turning the, the, the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Christ. So it's a matter of, of significance and importance. And we need to recognize that they're not doing what we're doing. And therefore, it would be totally inappropriate for us to go into a Catholic church and to participate in their communion service because it's um, a gross act of disobedience to God. And it's not that we're trying to beat up on those folks. We're just trying to protect ourselves against error. Uh, because if we're going to worship God, we have to worship in, them in the way in which he has prescribed and not in some 
a false or inappropriate way. And that's why we're Protestants. We protested what the Catholics were doing and came out in the Reformation under Martin Luther in 1517 and have remained out to this day for these reasons among a multitude of others. All right, well, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your holy word and for this wonderful ordinance that Christ has established for us to observe. Thank you for our communion services that we celebrate each month. And Lord, I pray that as we celebrate them, we might do so with a proper understanding of what your intention was in relationship to them. Give us wisdom and grace to be able to understand this part of your truth in a proper way so that we might please you by the way in which we participate in it. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.